There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Stop, stop, stop. Just before this big interview begins, I need to tell you about a new book being published by Backpage, the good guys, the made guys, who published my two books on Barca and Spain and who also thank the Lord for them, produce this podcast. Football 2.0, How the World's Best Play the Modern Game by Grant Wall, is in all good bookstores from May 15. What does that mean to you? Well, Grant Wall sits down with superstars such as Manuel Neuer, Vincent Company, and Xabi Alonso. And thanks to extensive interviews with players in every key position on and off the pitch, he explains the technical and tactical revolution which has transformed modern football. This book is packed with insights that only those at the very top of the sport can offer. In the words of my good friend Gabriel Marcotti, Grant Wall is an expert storyteller who has managed to get some of the best in the world to share the secrets of their trade. So, big interview listeners, that's your World Cup reading sorted. From Backpage, I'm Martin Gregg and this is the big interview at the World Cup. Today we're reflecting on the last couple of occasions France were in World Cup finals. 1-1, lost one, both probably the most memorable World Cup finals of the last 20 years. Graham Hunter, can I take you back to the burnished summer of 1998 when France last won the World Cup? Yes, it's a lovely phrase, burnished summer, because it it felt hot and long and uh, when the final was settled... It did take me back to '98 when I was a you know full-time, in inverted commas, Fleet Street reporter. I was an England correspondent, and the you know the, the, that summer was extraordinary in many ways. Um, I remember watching Croatia beating Germany in a fabulous display because back then I'm ashamed to say it was still a national sport. I think to watch to try and watch Germany lose because their decline was still far off and. It felt that there was a sort of liberation in a tournament if Germany got knocked out, and they were well and truly pumped uh, by by Croatia in in what was a late surge. Where even then, the the, the way back twenty years ago, the Croats were Fischer had more running and surged late in the game, all of which eventually led to France Croatia in in a semi final. Which, I mean, to me. One, I think the, the the winner will emerge with the same colour and the same flags and the same national anthem this Sunday compared to that day in um, in the Stade de France. On the day, I'm not certain, that, albeit that they were hosts, France were, in everybody's eyes, automatic winners because Croatia were had shown earlier in the tournament that they could be thrown, they could be really difficult to beat. And they'd also powered past Germany and... Uh, the build-up to the game w- was interesting because Croatia was still such a young country. I mean, I, I, historically, I'm, I may be wrong in saying I think they're younger than a quarter of a century. And therefore, it, it was still... It's strange to say it now, but it's still a country we were getting used to knowing about or, or naming or understanding how, if at all, they differed in language or culture or attitude from... 
Serbia or Bosnia. And um, the, the game was fabulous because I think it's true to this day. The Croatian fans um, were, were huge in number, were very, very noisy, clearly outnumbered then. But the, the occasion in a stadium, which I have to say I've grown to love, I've seen so much, really remarkable football there. The game was, I thought, scintillating. It was a point at which Sukar could still be regarded, I think, as one of the two or three leading strikers in the world. Gave the game a jolt of electricity with a goal just after halftime where his control, one touch to control, another one just to stick it underneath Bartes off his left foot. And Croatia had been playing, I thought, well enough, intelligently enough. They were so they were sufficiently full of quality that you, you didn't see it being easy for France to overturn that, that lead. Uh, and yet, you know, something truly remarkable uh, went on to happen in that I went back and found my match report, which was published the following day. And um, I, I remember we, at that stage, we didn't have uh, monitors fixed in our boxes. So I remember thinking, he's definitely on site, but not being clear, 100% clear, who it was. It turned out later that it had been Turam playing um, Shukar, who's now, I think, the president of the Croatian Federation. At any rate, Turam turns out to have been the guy who's played him on side. And you must remember the goals. I forget. I do, yeah. I mean, it's funny. I do actually remember the Turam's kind of subplot, and I remember him. He, he, played, he played Sugar on side for the goal, didn't he? And then there was a great shot of him just kind of standing, looking pretty disconsolate. And it's like, right, what happens now? And then probably, probably the finest, finest forty-five minutes of Tiram's career elapses after that. Yeah, he'd been. I mean, he he was. For anyone who doesn't remember him properly, he he was a sensational athlete, born out of as so many of the modern French greats proved to have been out of the Monaco Academy. Um, and the first time I, I I wasn't aware of him at Monaco. First time I became truly aware of him, I guess would have been at Parma and that great Parma team. And he went on to be a pretty dominant force for Juve and could play centre-back but was an out-and-out by trade uh, right-back. What happens that you refer to is that within a couple of minutes, he's playing very high up the pitch. France are pressing and Croatia are, are, are caught back. And... And Turan comes running in off what is an inside right position. He's so high up, really touching the edge of the Croatia box. And Rob's a midfielder, just gets right on it. Something that we saw Croatia doing um, last night, time and again to England, suddenly seeming to be able to come up behind an elite athlete. And, and the elite athlete has got partial deafness. It, no peripheral awareness. And... Turam gets in and nicks a toe to the ball. And at that point, you think, well, you know, big deal. But he gets in and he's, in, he's got enough to tuck the ball past Ladic. And it's been a real smash and grab goal. A goal that there's no way it should have happened. There's no way he should have been that high. Having been, it turns out, I didn't know at the time he was the culprit. But rather than him drawing his horns in and saying, what, I'm going to play a conservative, they're not going to get past me again, I'm going to play a conservative game. He did that most traditional fashioned of, of ideas about, I'll, I'll get retribution for my own mistake. And up he went and nicked the ball off the midfielder and, and, and scored. And the, what I remember was that it was ebb and flow in terms of attitude and ability and possession. 
that France very definitely had, I think they felt anointed, they had the blood up. He was infamous, Turam, for being um, intellectual. He's infamous that off the pitch, and I'd see him in this guys later off the pitch he was a he was a big big reader of good literature he was a guy who and footballers aren't often happy to be seen wearing specs for whatever reason but he was a guy who um i think played in contact lenses but wore specs um he was famous also for being even then being virulently um anti-racist articulate and antagonistic to those barbarians who spoil the game with their words or deeds or attitudes in terms of racism. He was also a you know, proper advocate, not simply anti-racism, but for equality, um, for black footballers, blacks in society, and um, therefore he stood out as somebody laudable. But he also stood out as somebody who never scored goals, just yeah. never scored goals. And this one that he, he tucks away um, is bent home off his left foot, which is clearly the weaker of his of his preferred options if he's going to shoot. And it's it gets put away as if, if again, if Platini or Zidane had scored that off their preferred foot, we'd have said, even then we'd have said, that's an absolute screamer. It was gorgeous, wasn't it? I remember the, the celebration as well, because he seemed slightly stunned after it. And I, I remember reading a quote afterwards saying he, he didn't know who he was or where he was. And <laughs> I think he thought he was in some kind of trance or whatever, but it was just this, like, it's almost like he never experienced those emotions before because he just he wasn't used to scoring goals and certainly not in games of that magnitude. Yeah, they'd rolled the dice in that Thierry Henry had come on. Thierry Henry ended up leading scorer for France in that tournament, having started as not only he was then a winger, um, but he was a substitute. He was on. Trezeguet had only just come on for Stefan Gibars, who I was I was thrilled to read the other day is a big old whole human being with a career sell. Did you read this? A career selling swing pool. Swing pools, yeah. We were talking about it, yeah. Fantastic article by some um, clever um, youngster in the Independent who, who went and found him in, um, I think, in Brittany or Normandy, probably Brittany. This guy is a... For anybody who doesn't remember Stefan Givars, he, he, he burst into that team really uh, late. I, I'm certain that he had... Um, a big transfer to Auxerre, and then I, I don't think it really worked out. And God, had it Green Camp, he had a he had a, a a storming season or two for Green Camp up in the north of France. And at any rate, before his his you know relatively flat times at both Newcastle and Rangers, he's the battering ram uh, that Emmanuel believes is is France's number nine. And you look now and. I think in the days of um, a false nine, you know, Pures could have played there. Trezeguet, um, an out-and-out nine who whose football powers were largely about um, holding the ball up, heading the ball, striking the ball with utter ferocity. And Thierry Henry, who goes on to be France's all-time leading scorer internationally. And Stefan Givarch, um is the, is the striker that day, whilst even though he's taken off with 20 minutes left, and at that stage, they're drawing. He'll start the final too. And now he's a swing pool salesman looking, in the picture of the article, looking as fit as a fiddle, looking still very young and, and evidently 
you know, all there emotionally and in, in, in terms of yeah. family life and work. It's, it was a lovely portrait, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was. And it was funny because I, I just pulled the starting lineups um, earlier on today for the for the final. And it's, it's quite funny going through it. There's Barthez, Turam, Leboeuf, Desaye, Lisa Rizou, Deschamps, Carimbo, Petit, Zidane, Djorkaev, and then Stefan Givarsh. And it's it's funny how finals very often throw up quite kind of random uh, footballers like this that they kind of have their moment. Um, but uh, yeah, that that was just a kind of interesting footnote to the story when I saw that the other day that he's now he's now selling swimming pools. It's just like wow, that's just that's just how could the story get any better? So Graham, let's kick ahead to talk about the final, and it's not very often in the context of World Cup finals that the most drama occurs before the game. Although there's, a, there's certainly a dramatic high point like there was in, in 1998. I just remember the sheer sense of confusion before the game. Like, what on earth is going on here? Ronaldo appears in the team sheet and then he disappears in the team sheet and then he appears again. No one knew what was going on at the time. I think it actually, in subsequent years, there might have been a parliamentary inquiry in Brazil into this, this entire incident. But take us back to that moment in time. What do you remember about the mystery of the team sheet? What I remember was that um, Ronaldo was in a state where everybody was gigantically excited about what, what form he was on. He'd been um, playing in, in Italy and, you know, he was part of a an interside that looked as if could it break through against Juventus. There would be an enormous focus on the refereeing scandals about how Ronaldo in particular was treated, but he was in the kind of form which you, you couldn't honestly say that it automatically superseded the way that he, he was playing at Barcelona because that one season was so extraordinary. But it felt like a football genius in his plenitude. He was fit and he was strong. He was playing in a Brazil side that when everybody sang from the same hymn sheet, the, the chorus was beautiful. They looked, They looked and felt a little bit unbeatable. I'd been down in Marseille again to see them hugely tested by Holland in one of the games of my life in a in a match that was equalised later on by Clivert and then penalties. And the way that Brazil dealt with the, the test from a good Holland team and the tension, I think underlined that feeling that that this was a very special group. Therefore, the, the, the stage was set for something really tantalising against, you know, a host in Paris. Even coming into the stadium, which, you know, I like to do as late as possible. But in this instance, you know, getting out to Saint-Denis and making sure that you got through the security checks meant that I was there at least, I don't know, a couple of hours before the game. And I went up to the to press tribune to my seat. And it's a, it's a phenomenal privilege that we have that people will come and give you the team sheets so that you can be sure without having to tune into your radio or, or there were no smartphones in those days. Fans had to wait until the stadium announcer said he was playing. And what happened was we were given the official FIFA team sheet and Ronaldo wasn't in it. Now, had been, if you weren't, I think, Brazilian um, or an agent or, or whatever it might be or, or working for Nike, there, there had been nothing but the merest rumours of something wrong in the, in the Brazilian camp. The... You know, in the in the in the morning of the game, there was nothing, absolutely nothing, no leaks. I I don't think there was Twitter then, and um, there certainly wasn't social media like there is now. That's absolutely clear. Um, TV radio didn't have it. Certainly, the keep France football didn't have it. 
as we approached the, the ground, there had been rumours of, of something, but nobody knew quite what was going on in the, in the Brazilian camp. And you've nailed it, Martin. To this day, even though in the last two years, Ronaldo has, has spoken about it much more clearly, to this day, there, there are grassy knoll um, Dallas bookshop rumours about what went on. And at the time, the, the rumours, when the team sheet came and was handed to us by official um, FIFA staff, some volunteers, some stadium staff, Ronaldo was in the bench. And Edmundo, who I think is, you know, largely forgotten now, but was at that stage an explosive and dangerous, not a centre forward, like a second striker, a player of enormous talent, but somebody who whose temperament was ridiculous, whose behaviour could be ridiculous, who had something of a penchant for getting sent off in club football, and who what shouldn't have been starting the, the final on merit. But the team sheet comes, and it's not a mistake, he's in it. And within about, I would say, because it was such a shocking event, I, I remember to this day, within about 25, maximum 30 minutes, an entirely new sheet comes out. Now, if you think about the information exchange and the printing process, that means by the time I was being, we were all, those of us who were in the Tribune were being handed the team sheets with Edmundo's name on it, the, the revolution in the dressing room where Ronaldo insisted on playing and Mario Zagallo said, Okay, that must already have been taking place by the time the original team sheet was put into our hands. Because the turnaround for telling you, FIFA, we've changed our minds. And then getting new team sheets reissued is, is extraordinary. So we are left without a proper information source, not knowing what's happened. That, that is it a punch-up? Is it a disciplinary thing? And I think for the, maybe for the Conocenti, maybe for the Brazilians who are ultra-tuned in to either a player or a sponsor or an agent. Maybe they knew a little bit more. Maybe the word about the fact that Ronaldo had had some sort of fit um, overnight had been found by Roberto Carlos and had been taken to hospital and, and, and Brazil had discarded him. Once he was checked out of hospital... It, he now admits, he says to Zagallo, I, I'm fine, I want to play, you have to play me. And Zagallo went out there, you know, on, you know, he walked the plank in pirate terms. Once the doctors say, this guy who, before the final kicks off, is probably the best player on the planet, including Zidane, what, what would you do? I would play him. <laughs> of course, you have to. I mean, imagine the outcry if he hadn't. Well, I think that's the realistic point of view. And certainly from my point of view, there's no point in being clever. If if that lean, middleweight boxer who's played brilliantly in the tournament, but when he stands up tall and says, boss, I'm fine, then you play him. And also there's no point in, in lying. He didn't have a good game, but he ran about. He got on the end of things. He wasn't Ronaldo. And if there had been no convulsive fit and no visit to hospital... We'd have just come away saying, well, what a shame he didn't have his day. He didn't play well. What was up with him? It was just one of those things. What added to it was the idea that did Nike insist that he had to play? Had somebody poisoned him? What the hell had happened? That's, that's what we were left with. But there's another side to it. You know, I'd been in that stadium for France against Saudi Arabia 
And the scoreline will tell you that in the group game it was 3-0 or 4-0. It was a pumping. And it's a subject of that brilliant Zidane film. And you can now put the two halves of the grapefruit together in that on the day, Zidane was getting frustrated. Saudi Arabia, Mark Tight, were physical, um, broke play up. And France had only just gone 2-0 up when Zidane, you know, shackled again, stamps on a player and gets sent off. Now, what we don't see is what the film shows you of, of Zidane going into um, the dressing room and, you know, castigating himself and clearly not furious at Saudi Arabia, not furious at the referee, furious at himself, which I really liked. I've got enormous affection for Zidane and, and what he's done for football and what he represents and what kind of person he is too. At, at any rate, this has gone on. He, he hasn't had a superb... World Cup. Um, it's it's also the case that when um, France play um, in the quarterfinals, I think it is against Italy. It's it's extremely tight. He scores his penalty, but they can't shake off Italy. I remember as well, although I wasn't at it, um, there was another day of absolute frustration for them against Paraguay when. One of the guys who's, I mean, people talk about Paraguay's goalkeeper, Schillebert, but at that time, a friend and I were a little bit involved in trying to see if Carlos Gamara could be moved to the Premier League and blah, blah, blah. And Gamara was this extraordinary centre-half. And although Laurent Blanc scores in extra time and France go through, it was another day of, you know, absolutely gigantic uh, frustration. Um, Zidane's... Absent, there's a possibility that um, because of his behaviour, either he'll not participate in key games for France or France will go out of the World Cup. And, and this day comes along. And they face Brazil. Ronaldo's clearly not right. Edmundo, it turns out, has a fit that he's been dropped, having been promoted. And <sighs> Zidane scores. He didn't make a big habit of headers, but he scores twice. You know, once before the half hour, once bang on, the killer blow, bang on half time. And and decorates his career with what, what remains. Hamden aside, Champions League finals as coach aside, the night of his life. Um, you know at half time that at 2-0, that's it. It takes a long time for the third to come. I'd been spending a lot of time watching Arsenal at, at, in, in those days. I thought the world of Emmanuel Petit and, and Patrick Vieira, I, I, to this day I love going back and watching them play together for Arsenal and the move that they construct to score the third is, is sensational and I remember going out after the match to the to the mix zone and going to linking the semi-final and the final Martin um, because Laurent Blanc is, is banned it's Frank LeBeouf of um, Chelsea who plays. And Frank has stumbled upon a player's World Cup winning medal because of a red card that the world at that stage was trying to argue was unjust for, for Blanc. And, you know, he's a Chelsea player. Um, I've watched him at the bridge often enough. Um, I've watched um, Gary Neville and Phil Neville um, 
mock him in a really heated um, I'm, I'm pretty sure Gary Neville got sent off a really heated Chelsea Manchester United game and Gary turned back and did that thing with your both hands behind your ears and you pull your ears out to make it you know, making him look like an ugly mug and Gary putting both hands to push his ears out to tell them how ugly he was on the way down the touchline as he'd been sent off. And and therefore, Desai, with his elegance in the ball, with his tremendous shooting power, um, was this friendly Premier League face. And we gathered around him. And one of the questions was, um, Frank, you've won the World Cup and you were marking Ronaldo. How was it? And he just goes, easy. <laughs> And then I thought, well, well, fair enough. And he had this absolutely cheesy, you know, crescent moon-sized grin all over his face, whereby, you know, the lottery had fallen straight into his wallet uh, with Blanc sent off, the world saying, this is a disgrace. Leboeuf picked. In the final, Desailly sent off with 20 minutes left. And there's Fearless Frank playing against a 45% ready Ronaldo and Zagallo doesn't even use two subs Edmundo comes on with 15 minutes left and sulks um, I, I don't understand why there weren't more changes made and, and Frank must have been during the match going Whoa, you are my lucky star Ronaldo and it made me laugh and, and later on with a chum we walked pretty much from Saint-Denis into town with our feet crunching on broken glass almost all the way and walked right into town and walked right to the Champs-Élysées to, towards certainly where we could see the Arc de Triomphe. And when I see France in a World Cup final, when I see France-Croatia again in a World Cup this Sunday compared to that semi-final, all of these things come flooding back and I thought, nobody else is listening, just lets you and I have a chat about it. Okay, that was the 1998 World Cup final. Join us after the break where we'll be talking about 2006. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Graeme, we are talking before there about moments of dramatic tension and, and the one that occurred before the, the 1998 final. I'm not saying the 2006 final was forgettable. It was far from it. But the moment of high dramatic tension came in extra time when, unforgettably, Zidane planted one on Marco Materazzi. Can you take us back to that moment? This was an, an extraordinary occasion, obviously, because France 
I got through more or less on the idea that Zidane and, and Thierry Henry were doing something all-time special in that they, they never looked really as if they should reach the final and there'd been a massive fallout between Raymond Dominic and, and Robert Pires and here they were um, in, in Berlin against the Italy side which had um, played one of the, again, one of the great games I've ever been at in the semi-final. It was Germany-Italy in Dortmund and the, the noise was extraordinary. Italy ended up with five strikers on the pitch, I think, um, to win 2-1 and to take them to Berlin. And, and you know, it was an extraordinary uh, build-up, really genuinely, I mean that word, extraordinary. And a fabulous stadium, an early penalty. Zidane, everybody will remember, tries to chip this guy who you don't chip, do you? It's Buffon. He's about 26 foot tall, as if he's got a ladder down his stockings. And yet Zidane does it, it comes off the bar, does it go in? It, it feels like he's done two fingers to um, to Italy, to fate, I don't know. It's his third goal in a World Cup final. It, it really feels um, immense. He's already announced his retirement with um, Real Madrid. It's finished with a 3-3 draw against Villarreal. And then he, he, he takes... He, him and Henri and Abidal, I think, take France to a final that nobody's imagined they're going to be in. They go 1-0 up. And then the two scorers are historic. It's Zidane and Materazzi. And all I can tell you is that by the time we reach extra time, in my view, Italy are the better side. In my view, Italy look as if they've got more stamina. And I have really, really enjoyed their play. And um, um, France are playing in front of us, in front of me, left to right, Italy right to left. And the ball has moved towards our part of the stadium, towards our half, in the direction of um, Fabian Barthez's goal. And all that we can see is that there's been an incident because somebody draws Horacio Elizondo's attention to it, the referee who'd come and brief Spain before the 2010 World Cup in, in Puchestrum. He's an Argentinian and he hasn't seen the incident and I'm picturing it as I speak now because I'm aware that memory is not always your friend and that memory is a little jack and ape that can try to trick you. And, and all I can tell you is that um, around that Olympic Stadium in, in Berlin, which is a huge, cavernous place, there are screens, more screens than I'm used to. And when Elisondo runs back, he then seems to turn and consult with a fourth official. And I haven't looked at this back. But he runs and gives Zidane a red card. What I swear to this day is that in the process, while the, this decision is being communicated from the touchline, during the time when we're not quite clear what happens, for whatever reason, it flashes up briefly the incident on the screens, which is in complete contradiction of the way that replays that might be controversial or allowed to be shown at football matches but I swear to you that on that day for whatever reason the incident where Matarazzi has said whatever he says 
to Zidane and Zidane turns and puts his head straight into Matarazzi's breastbone, you know, beneath the chin. And um, the walk, when, when the red card goes up and it's deep into injury time and you, you, you immediately wonder whether France can even hold on for the remnant of um, extra time and you wonder what effect this will have on them in terms of penalty taking if it does go there and and we could see because it's right down below us now that as Zidane walks past you know the, the trophy's there and he walks past and you know because he's announced it that this is the last time you'll see him competitively on a football field so um, it's, to me you know I, I've never fully understand why why people love the ring cycle by Wagner and go to Glyndebourne and sit there for six hours and what, what they tell you, because I like a bit of opera, is that the, the storm and drang of opera is about the human condition and that it brings in all the noises of the world and all the colours of the world and every experience that your emotions go through in a, in a dramatic life. And that, that's what I saw that, that evening in Berlin. In my eyes, the strange eyes that I've been given, the strange mind that I've been given. I saw the human condition. I saw provocation that I would have answered. And that I, I to this day, I... I may be stupid for saying it, but I'm not a hypocrite. I get when I found out what Matarazzi had done, I, I I thought Zidane was true to himself. He'd he'd spoke he wasn't a great um explainer of life or career during his playing career. He was a he was taciturn. If he wasn't shy, he was certainly taciturn. He believed that how he acted towards people in his personal life or in his professional life was enough that he didn't have to do a lot of media. And he didn't do a lot of media. Prior to this, there had been a couple of times where he actually sat down with his brothers on TV and, and they all had a chat such that the weight wasn't solely on Zizou. But he's talked subsequently about the incident. I remember it must have been, I don't know, a year ago or before either this Champions League final or the previous one, a French TV channel brought him back through the whole incident and the repercussions, and tears came to his eyes. But at the time, he saw a, a clear path that Matarazzi had insulted his family. And when he was growing up in, in Marseille, he grew up in, in you know, a, a tough neighbourhood where you, where you stood up or you got trampled on. And what we saw was the... the that was as true a Zidane as it was... Um, when he was sent off against Saudi Arabia, when he scored those goals against Bayer Leverkusen or against Brazil. And it's a shame for him, it's a shame for France, but all I can say is that I understood it. And when when Grosso scored the penalty towards the end, I was a little bit unhappy that Matarazzi was on the winning side um, because Zidane had my admiration. I didn't know what was behind what had gone on then, but... Zidane was a player that I admired far over Matarazzi's um, craziness. But Grosso to get the, the brilliant goal in Dortmund and then Grosso to get that brilliant goal, um, that, that final winning penalty in Berlin and Gattuso to strip off his shorts and running, run around in his underwear. Um, and the fact that I'd been around, I'd been at the press conference where Cannavaro, happy, handsome, young, dominant, had been told that Pesotto, his old um, his old team at Juventus, had tried to commit suicide and had jumped off the roof of the administration building at Juventus and the, the 
The shadow, the darkness that went across his face as that news was given to him mid-press conference and he upped and left and, and drove to the airport with three or four others and hopped on a private plane and flew to Turin mid-World Cup to try and comfort Pesotto and his family and to try and see that their old teammate was was alive. And he did live and he and he has had you know treatment and counselling and his and his last I heard was back working with events. But these things move me, move you if you're witness to it. And therefore to see Cannavaro fifteen or so days later lifting that trophy after a, a grosso penalty and, and giving triumph to Marcello Lippi who'd been mocked in, in Italy for failing to win a Champions League and who'd been and would again be called a failure because of losing to Milan at Old Trafford in 2003, I think. I found it an emotional night, I have to say, and um, I was infuriated by my colleagues who got votes, like I did, in the in the golden ball um, at the end of that. You were given a slip on this hot, sweaty night, crossing a, a constructed sort of Meccano and um, plywood bridge from the stadium to the, to the press centre, that um, this to me was a World Cup where, um, let me just say, uh, I thought that I was delighted for Cannavaro, um, but I thought there was another winner. Um, an enormous, an enormous uh, experience. France in a World Cup final then, as they are now on Sunday. Um, let the final bring us moments of similar quality and drama and all-time iconic status as 98 and 2006. I can't wait for it, Graham, and I look forward to catching up for a full preview before the final on Sunday. I really hope you're enjoying these World Cup shows. We've got huge plans for next season, but we do need your help to make them happen. Go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to become a socio, a member, to join us, to support us. You'll get an extra big interview every month, plus lots of other bonus content. Last season, our members got nine exclusive big interviews, including Rafa van der Vaart, Troy Deeney, and Roberto Di Matteo. So go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Do it now, please.